0: 44% of these dogs had one common denominator, and that was humans. It was actually dog professionals in the form of vets or groomers or so-called dog trainers. And harsh handling was the main reason.
1: Listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 85 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. I can't believe it's the last episode of 2023. This year has been quite a roller coaster of a ride, to be honest. I remember just in the first few months of this year, we lost our dog Penny. My husband and I got COVID for the first time ever. I was having IT and laptop technical issues, and I was really sort of over this whole year of 2023. But here we are, we made it, and now I'm recording this episode while our new gal Nessie is out in the hallway chewing her antler very loudly in case you hear something in the background. I had intended to drop a bonus episode with my husband and I discussing the story of how our new girl Nessie came to join our family, but we actually had a personal loss in our family recently, in my husband's family actually, and so we just haven't been able to do that yet, but I hope to have something for you coming soon in early 2024. And I feel like there's been so many people who I know who have been affected by a loss this year particularly the loss of a pet and particularly the loss of like a really good heart dog or soul dog that you really had that kind of intense connection with that really rocks you to your core to lose. So if this is your first holiday season without a beloved family member, know that we are here for you and that you are not alone. I can very vividly remember Christmas of 2022. It was extremely, extremely cold here in the mid-Atlantic, like below zero freezing temperatures last Christmas. And I have this photo of Penny and my husband said it looked like a kindergartner who had dressed herself because she was wearing her pink pajamas with the hearts that say mom on them. And then she had her pink plaid coat on, and then she had her red and green Christmas tutu on. And she was just as happy as can be running through the yard. We were going to take our special car ride together. And I happened to capture a picture of it, not knowing that that would be one of the last photos I ever took of her. And I feel like I'm going to be calling up those penny vibes and that penny spirit at Christmas this year for sure. And as we look forward to 2024, I want you to know that I have some amazing guests and fascinating topics, and I continue to look forward to sharing with you stories of all the ways that dogs can show up in our lives as healers, as teachers, and as inspirations. And I think you're really going to love today's episode, I've been so excited to share it with you a little behind the scenes information. I had actually wanted to feature another nonprofit organization for the month of December, but the scheduling just didn't work out in time. And so I was really excited to move things around so that I could get you this conversation with Carolina Lupo as soon as possible. Caroline had reached out to me to discuss the topic of trauma and PTSD in dogs. And this really caught my attention because If you've ever heard me talk about my dog Nino before, you know, my husband and I have actually kind of jokingly said that we think he had PTSD from his early life of neglect and abuse. And Caroline is here today to tell us that that's no joke. Dogs can absolutely suffer from PTSD. In fact, she did her whole master's thesis on this. And I'm going to include a link to that in the show notes because I really think it's a fascinating read if this is a topic that you're really interested in. So Caroline's going to share with us about her background with dogs and how this topic of trauma in dogs became important to her and why she pursued this in her own life and how she has created a criteria to help other dog practitioners diagnose PTSD in dogs. And we're going to talk about what behaviors and what health conditions can actually go hand in hand with a diagnosis of PTSD. And I'm going to share with her some of our experiences about Nino and how he falls perfectly in line with a lot of this criteria. One of the things I was really interested in, you know, because I'm somebody who rescues dogs, adopts dogs, I don't always know their background. And so I was curious about the dogs in her study, how many people actually knew what caused their dog's trauma versus how many didn't. And then when they looked at how many of the people who did know what caused their dog's trauma... As you heard in the introductory clip, a lot of it was caused by people, especially people in pet professions. And this was just blowing my mind. And if you read her thesis paper, she describes some of these experiences in detail. And it was just really surprising to me to read how pet professionals can be handling dogs and contributing to trauma. And then I was really curious about Dogs that maybe have like a one-time traumatic situation versus dogs who live in situations like abuse or neglect or even war zones and how that could potentially manifest differently and cause complex PTSD. And Caroline shares with us what we as pet parents can do to create a healing environment and make sure that we're not inadvertently doing things to make the problem worse. And we'll also talk about what we as pet parents can do to try to, you know, prevent and protect our dogs from traumatic situations. We'll also hear about the app that Caroline is involved in. There's a dog training app called Petly. And we'll hear about everything that you can get through the Petly app as well. And Caroline is coming to us all the way from Sweden. And there was actually a big storm coming through while Caroline and I were recording. Now, the good news is we didn't have any kind of technological issues, but her dogs were kind of tap dancing with their toys in the background a few times. I think you're going to love this one. I'm so excited for you to meet Caroline Alupo. So we're here today with Caroline Alupo. Caroline, how are you?
0: I'm doing just great. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. I have so much I want to talk to you about. And I always love starting off by asking about your childhood experiences with pets. So I did not actually grow up with any kind of pets. I didn't even know that I liked dogs until I was 25. And it changed my whole life. And so I'm always curious what that looks like for everyone else. Did you grow up with pets?
0: Yeah, I grew up with a big German Shepherd. Junior, his name was, but he was huge. So he was... He was my number one buddy when I was a kid so I grew up with him and a a cat Uh, and then dogs have just followed I I don't think I've had a whole year without a dog in my life so there's been a lot of dogs (laughs) did you
1: always have a goal as a child like did you want to grow up to work with animals
0: Yeah, absolutely. I spent uh, a lot of time at the dog training club as a kid and and in the stable, you know, so animals were a huge part of my life then. And I knew from the start that I wanted to dedicate my, my life to helping them.
1: Oh, wow. So you are one of the only people I think that I have spoken with on the podcast who is actually an ethologist. Can you explain to us what that is?
0: Yeah, sure. An ethologist is a biologist, really that has just dug deeper into the science behind animal behavior and animal needs and and drives and communication skills and emotional life and animal psychology. So uh, the actual academic line is biology, but the focus is animal behavior.
1: Okay. So can you tell us about your career path? When did you decide to become a trainer and, and how did this all unfold for you?
0: Well, I started at a really early age. I was about 15 years old when I started having like, dog classes at the local club. Um, and then when I was about 20-odd, I, I started my university years. And at the same time, I decided, you know, I want to take the whole, whole course and do the dog trainer education. Um, and at the same time, I also spent some time in Spain working with rescue dogs. And uh, I was in between two dogs at the moment. So I fell madly in love with this rescue dog and brought him home and realized quite quickly that, wow, this this guy's got issues. So after becoming a dog trainer, I jumped on the dog, what we call in Sweden, a dog psychologist uh, education. Uh, so then I did that as well as I was at the university. So he kind of pushed me in, in that direction as he needed uh, me to have you know greater knowledge to help him really.
1: And what was that dog's name? Boss. Boss. Okay. Yeah. So Boss is making me think of my guy, Nino. Mm. And you had originally contacted me talking about PTSD and dogs. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, that is my dog, Nino. Mm. And it has been a really interesting journey. He has been with us for eight years now. And we knew that he came out of an animal control, abuse, neglect kind of situation. And all of our dogs, because we've always adopted rescue dogs, you know, we know that there was something not great in their past. But usually, you know, we've been able to work with them and build positive associations and and things like that. And I guess we realized that, oh... (laughs) This is different. (laughs) Mm. Nino is not responding the way that we thought he would, uh, the way that everything we read online and all the videos we watched and all the people I've talked to have said that this should work. Uh, It's not working. Mm. So is that like what you experienced with Boss?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, the years to come when I worked as a dog psychologist, I met a lot of dogs that were frightened or had aggression issues or resource guarding or home alone issues. But then I also met these dogs where nothing really worked. And for a lot of them, there was an incident that had happened. And it was after that incident that the dog had changed on, on a, a very profound level. Uh, and that's when I realized this is something else. This is triggered by a one incident and it really changed the whole dog's uh, well-being. Uh, and the fear, uh, even if the the output of that fear was aggression, it was extreme. And uh, often the dog owners said like, it's a Dr. Jacqueline, Mr. Hyde situation. I mean, they, they're so nice and sweet and friendly. And then they're something happens and the dog just flips out completely. And the emotions are so strong. Um, And that's when I started digging deeper into, you know, what could this be really?
1: I am always glad when the topic of PTSD and of trauma is talked about even amongst people just in like general world that we should all realize that we're affected by traumas. Mm. And, you know, some I don't know if this is something that you hear over in Sweden, but like people will say, well, there's big T trauma and then little T trauma. And I, I just think regardless, you know, whatever it is, something that sticks with us, that affects us negatively, like that, it's really helpful to know that that's what's happening to us and to realize how like our own behaviors like i i always look at it as like the brain is trying to protect us but it gets kind of <laughs> something gets kind of screwed up along mm. the way and it starts negatively affecting our lives and i was realizing like oh i could totally that totally makes sense to me that that could happen for dogs too
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's a big difference between human or dog. You know, if you experience something and it makes you scared, it makes you a bit anxious, it alters your perspective on life or the world or people or or whatever it is you've experienced. Uh, But then there is like the big and the small. We have uh, about 30% of all dogs that experience something similar will develop PTSD. But 70%, they'll just become a bit wary and scared and with time and some training, they'll recuperate on their own. But these 30%, they're really affected badly. And, and it's like their emotional system is completely blocked from being able to process this and put it in the long-term memory. It's in their short-term memory all the time. And they're very easily triggered. And the emotions that arise are similar to those that the dog actually had when they experienced the incident. And it's like... a. a, a A nightmare just on repeat for these dogs and we see in humans as well that that people with PTSD I mean they have physical responses and they get these panic attacks and it's not just being affected by you know a negative experience or you know you have you're in a car crash and afterwards uh, you're a bit scared of driving driving the car again but after a couple of years it kind of wears off and that's not PTSD that's not really being traumatized PTSD won't wear off without proper treatment and therapy. And even with that, I always say we can't you know, cure it. We can only treat it and dogs can get better over time. But the, the target goal can't be to erase the dog's memory because that's impossible. We just have to help the dog to actually process those memories and put it in the long-term memory and, and feel better, have new experiences of, of similar situations and, and be able to feel other feelings um, and get out of their shell because because exactly like it is for humans a lot of these dogs go into a state of depression as well and they lose their vitality and their their you know the joy in life is, is lost and we have to reintroduce that to help them get better
1: and so now i'm somebody who d- who studied a little bit of psychology in college And I've also been in therapy for like 20 years. So I'm very familiar with things like the DSM, which Mm. is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that basically lists out the criteria of how you determine whether a person has depression or anxiety or schizophrenia or PTSD. And so my understanding is that you have been trying to come up with a way to diagnose this uh, in dogs. Is that right?
0: Yeah, exactly. That's right. When I want, went to do my master's thesis uh, at the end of my university years, I, uh, I said to the university, right, I want to take the DSM scale and I want to make something that applies to dogs. Uh, because there is no such thing. When you look at dog psychologists, we do not have a criteria for diagnosis. Um, and we need to. And especially when it comes to really se- severe dilemmas like this. So I took the DSM uh, diagnostic tool for PTSD in humans and I I applied it to dog. And there were certain things, of course, that I had to take away uh, because in that diagnostic tool, there's things like the, the patient or the client telling the therapist that I have nightmares and they include memories of the trauma or... I uh, have flashbacks and I see visions of ABC related to the trauma. Or they could also explain their feelings when they thought of the trauma. All of that we had to, of course, take away when trying to apply this tool on dogs.
1: Right, right. So I read your paper. And again, because of what I have done in school and also in my career, like, I just have to compliment you on like I understand all that had to go into this in like designing a study and finding a criteria and the the nerd in me was like very <laughs> excited to, to to read all of this. And so how many dogs were a part of the study?
0: We have 57 dogs in the study. Uh, We had more that applied and and said, you know, I think my dog has been been traumatised. But when going through the the diagnostic tool that was left, when we took out the things we couldn't use, there was still a lot of things that we actually could use to diagnose this in dogs. Uh, And and 57 were left. And the ones we also took out were dogs that had uh, illnesses or pain-related issues, because then it's really hard to know, you know, what's what, because the symptoms of PTSD and severe and chronic pain can be very similar. So we had to take out some dogs uh, that didn't really apply. And as well, dogs that didn't meet the criteria uh, that when we went through the, the the diagnosis, we saw that no, this dog hasn't got PTSD, it's something else. Oh, okay.
1: And so was it like a, a questionnaire? And like, how did you find the people to be a part of the study?
0: Yeah, at that moment, I'd been working with with dogs for many, many years. so. I kind of sent it out in all my channels and asking asking dog owners around me and put it on my website, but also in a lot of, you know, general open Facebook groups with dogs and dog owners in them, of course. And then the university also did their job. So we kind of spread it, just spread it all around. Uh, and all these cases started coming in.
1: What did the owners have to do? Did they answer questions? Was it like an interview? Like, how did this all work?
0: Yeah, they they had a questionnaire that they filled out. And uh, if I didn't get, you know, in-depth answered or needed more information, I'd call them up and we'd have an interview. And then there's also a part of the study about um, the discussion part about the study where I also relate to finds that I've had in my work experience. So there's really two parts of it.
1: And so I know that I bet there are pet parents listening who are wondering, is it possible that my dog has PTSD? And so since obviously we can't ask them, right? Like you're saying, like, you can't ask like, hey, do you have nightmares? You know, why does that car scare you? What is it that you look for in a dog's behavior or even in their physical health? Like, what are some of the indicators that a pet parent should look for to to think maybe this is what's going on with my dog?
0: The first thing, if the dog is, you know, a happy-go-lucky pet dog and then suddenly... Dog experienced something that's potentially traumatic because it's never the incident in itself that is is classified as a traumatic incident. It's the dog's subjective and individual response to it, really, that the dog's feelings, and that's why this can differ between dogs. Uh, So it's the incident, we want to look at it, and if the incident the dog experienced a loss of control, a loss of predictability in this experience. And if the dog could have feared for his or her life, uh, then the, the actual happening is a potential traumatizing factor. And then after that experience, we want to see how the dog differs over time, how, how the dog changes. And some dogs will change directly afterwards with an increased vigilance and Some become really hyperactive. Others become really low and passive. uh, And we see the tendencies to not wanting to do things they previously enjoyed. We also see uh, a response to primary and secondary triggers, things that the dog connect to this happening, this incident. And we also see an, an active avoidance. And for dogs, that can be shying away, running off, trying to flee, or barking at or trying to lunge at, say, being a person or another dog or a vehicle or a sound source, for instance. So avoidance of triggers and that the emotional state of the dog is also uh, slowly becoming worse and worse over time. So the happy-go-lucky dog isn't so happy-go-lucky anymore. Uh, And sometimes we also see a change in the dog's appetite or we see gastrointestinal problems like constipation or diarrhea or vomiting, IBS, you know, bloated, stressed stomach kind of thing. And in the study, uh, quite a few of the dog owners also noticed that the dog's sleeping pattern was changed. So the dog slept either much heavier or always needed to be really close to the owner to be able to sleep or slept with like one eye open, half awake, that hypervigilance as well, worried that, that, you know, when's the sky going to fall down on me again? Uh, and some also noticed that their dogs, what they, they thought was nightmares. So the dogs would start screaming or barking or running or howling in the middle of, of their sleep. And this was then something that they had never experienced in their dog before this happening. So it's like a clear cut change before and after this this event. I mean, if the years pass by and time goes, then we'll also see quite commonly things like a, a changed body posture so instead of standing tall and proud, the dog is like hunched up, tail between its legs, more often or always ready for for a fight. And, and that changes the body posture and also the dog's, uh, you know, the, the tension in the body. Uh, so long term, that would lead to pain related issues.
1: Yeah, I was in my mind, based on just my non-professional <laughs> pet parent mind, I was thinking that It either goes one of two ways. It either goes to like fearful, aggressive, reactive dog, or it goes to like the fearful avoidant shutdown dog. And that's what Nino is. And uh, it took us a while to realize that that's what was going on with him, you know? And I remember when we went to adopt him, we still had my dog Penny at the time. And uh, they had to do like a meet and greet to see how they did. And he just didn't react to her at all. And they were kind of like, oh, this is like the most calm meet and greet. They're going to be great together, you know, and getting to know him over the weeks, months that followed. I'm like, Oh, he was just a completely shut down dog. <laughs> like, yeah. Now, we were very fortunate. They got along really well together. You know, they never had a problem. But we call it zombie dog mode when he gets very uncomfortable. It's almost like you can see like the lights go out and he it's like Nino's not even home anymore. He's just in this like... Fearful state of like, get me out of here.
0: <laughs> yeah, dissociation. I mean, we see that in humans with PTSD, and we also see it in dogs. And and I mean, the severe form of it is apathy, really, when they just completely shut down. But yeah. dissociation is quite common in PTSD dogs, especially in the passive copers. So they they shut down and they go into a free state, and they kind of lock lock in that state.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was like that for a really long time (laughs) like when he ended up in the shelter and when you know and when we adopted him and i i remember like it was so funny like after a week or two of being at our house he started doing zoomies around the house and you know and we were like oh my god this was amazing Mm. you know because he had just kind of been so blah you know when, when we first got him there and just everything would scare him he would just like pancake hit the ground if the furnace came on if the dishwasher was on we had never seen that kind of extreme we thought anyway extreme <laughs> behavior you know in a dog so uh, like I said this is also personal to me and I'm, I'm so excited to to get to talk about this with you so I was really interested you know obviously he's a rescue so I don't know his history <laughs> so of the people who were a part of the study like, did most of them know what had caused the trauma in their dog?
0: No, not all of them. Uh, Quite a lot of them were rescues. And in my line of work, you know, I also meet a lot of dogs that are diagnosed with PTSD, but we haven't got a clue what caused it. But we see all the symptoms. They, They tick all the boxes, you know, of the criteria for PTSD. And in those cases, we just know that they are traumatized, but not for, for what reason? We don't know the cause really behind it. And sometimes the dogs kind of tell the story because their trigger reactions, what they react to, kind of gives us little hints of what, what's happened to them. So it's rather, rather important to try to figure out, you know, what are the primary triggers here? What are the secondary triggers and what could have happened to this dog? So yeah, rescue dogs, they are, yeah, I meet a lot of them with this kind of dilemma.
1: So of the people who who did actually know what traumatized their dog. Can you tell us like what some of those types of situations were?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was quite a horrific found when we saw that 44% of these dogs had one common denominator, and that was humans. So some of these dogs had been in you know, car accident or experienced New Year's Eve or a dog attack or, or things like that. There were quite a lot of of incidents that were not related to humans as well, but 44, there was always a human involved and it could have been their own owner, but more often it was actually dog professionals in the form of vets or groomers or so-called dog trainers. And harsh handling was the main uh, reason. And with harsh handling, I mean punishment. I mean, violence really it was choke chains and pulling and pushing them down to the ground in these alpha roles or beating them, kicking um or overexpose uh, overexposure to to sound when people try to sound train their dogs pinning them down to the ground and and firing off guns and things like that it was really really horrible but yeah it was mostly due to the human factor people trying to solve dogs problematic behaviors or just raising dogs and training dogs with harsh met- methods uh, and in the in the case of groomers and vets it was often dogs that had shown some kind of opposition to the handling growled for instance and they were pinned down or or strung up in a prong collar things like that
1: Yeah that was really shocking for me to read because when in, when you read the paper you explain like you know some of these different scenarios and I was really shocked reading some of these yeah. situations I mean I guess I shouldn't be I guess I should never be shocked by by how humans are reacting but mm. Oh, I was curious, you had said before about primary triggers and secondary triggers. Can you explain more about what that is and like how that how that would apply?
0: Yeah, sure. I'm working with a case now, actually, this uh, Bichon Havanais. And uh, he he the the incident that happened to him was that he was walking along with his dog parents. And all of a sudden, there was a really bad Storm, really bad, rainy weather, and thunder and lightning, and quite close to them, uh, a lightning struck. Uh, so it was a really bad, loud sound, and his dog parent picked him up and ran towards this mall, and there was a lot of people running towards this mall to, to run for safety. And once inside, there was people everywhere running, and people were worried and they tried to get out a back door and At that back door, there was kids with balloons and one of these balloons banged exactly when she passed so this little guy he has uh, a severe sound phobia and ptSD and the primary trigger is thunder, of course, loud bangs, the sound of balloons, or any any kind of you know really loud bangs or not like if, if there's some rattling or metal sounds, he doesn't, doesn't mind, but the, the loud bangs is a problem, and even if they're not loud, there's some, some similarity to that kind of sound. Um, it's, it's really worrisome for him as well as rain. you know as soon as it gets dark and starts raining, he panics. And the secondary triggers for him is being in kind of like a mall or a shop where there's people around. And that scares him a lot. And kids is a secondary trigger. I mean, they held the balloon when it banged, and that's really scared him. So the bang was what, what scared him, but the kids were associated to that. So that's one example of, of secondary and primary triggers. I worked with another case. There was a, a dog out on a walk with uh, uh, her owner, and this dog, she was attacked by another dog. So a big black dog came and attacked this this dog. And uh, the owner ran home with with her dog, who was bitten really badly and wanted to get a car and called the vets. And uh, the other owner tried to be responsible and ran, ran after her, knocked on her door, rang her doorbell to, you know, exchange contact details and, and apologize for this incident, which was really, really good about. But the secondary trigger became the doorbell and people coming in the door. The primary trigger was, of course, Big Black's dogs, or dogs coming running towards her, or dogs playing rough with her. So that scared this dog immensely. But any time the doorbell rang, she completely panicked because she associated it with this woman coming, uh, and she had her dog with her. So that dog not only attacked the dog in the park, but also showed up on the doorstep. So that's another example of secondary and uh, primary triggers
1: okay so for the people who knew their dog's trauma issue i would imagine in something like these situations you're describing here like the change in their dog is probably immediate Mm. or is it that way for everyone or like is it are there some cases where it takes time to see or is it a pretty like immediate change
0: for most of them it was quite an immediate change but there are dogs that do not show any symptoms at all for as far as up to six months after this experience and it all depends on when they actually are exposed to a primary trigger or secondary trigger again and that can take time uh, to set in. So I had this one case in the study, the dog was alone in like a dog pen outside and the ice cream truck came and circled the, the premises with their, we have like this really loud melody they played right. and he just kept <laughs> circling this this farm uh, with this loud melody on and that dog developed PTSD, got really, really scared uh, and, uh, and was all alone in this situation. And it took months and months month before the dog heard a similar sound of melody so the owners didn't have a clue but uh, when it when it happened again they they saw in their dog that oh my god this is this is terrifying for this dog so when diagnosing ptsd what we also want to see what we want to see but what, what a criteria for it is that the dog's overall health mental health has been reduced and has become, you know, worse and over time. So we can't really diagnose it 100% just after a month or two, because then we do not know is this an individual that will recuperate on his or her own, or will will the state just get worse and worse? So to get a final diagnosis, six months must have passed. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't act before that. We should, of course, help these dogs as soon as we possibly can. If we we suspect PTSD.
1: So what about also, I was wondering, like an acute situation versus a chronic situation, which to me, in my mind, if you have a perfectly you know, normal, happy dog that has this terrible situation with the storm and the mall and the balloon and like that's very like a one specific incident being in my mind, I'm calling that acute
0: versus, yeah. you know, a
1: situation like... Nino, my dog, who lived the first two years of his life in a neglectful and abusive type situation. Or I was even thinking of dogs that are in like war zone type situations, you know, where something is like just ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. Is there any difference for you when like diagnosing this? Or I guess maybe it's in their recovery process of whether it was like a one time thing or whether it was like a, a long term thing.
0: Yeah, we see that the dogs that have been subjected to something uh, traumatizing for a longer period of time, like neglect or a long, uh, many years of abuse or violence, or, or these war war dogs, then the risk is much larger for PTSD complexa. So um, a more more or less chronic disor- chronic disorder, but it's still treatable, but not curable. Um, But yeah, we see that they're much worse off,
1: really. One thing I was really curious about and was really surprising to me reading your study was about how pet parents react to realizing, oh, hey, there's something going on here with my dog. And I guess that was what was shocking, I guess, to me was how much the owners are then making it worse. And, and there's kind of Two ways I was looking at it. Number 1 is by flooding, which I want you to define and explain for us. And then number 2 was like by the owners' then treatment of their dogs. Did that surprise you also?
0: <laughs> yeah, that was worrisome. And I mean, we have very strict animal welfare laws in Sweden, and we do a lot of research on on you know, in the universities on dog and dog psychology and dog's emotion, but still we haven't got very far <laughs> and i think on the downside of it i mean on the other other polar side of it is you know media and tv shows that kind of show quite harsh methods really and when people just google around and try to find solution of dogs being aggressive they quite often find you know video clips or tv shows where people are very harsh to the dogs and dominate them and and you know and we saw that in this study and I'm so thankful for all these brave dog owners in this study that poured their heart out and were very honest about having to have punished their dogs uh, because of not knowing better really and being at the end of the line and being really frustrated and, and, and trying these harsh methods and what they quite quickly experienced what that, that, that it didn't work and the dogs were just re-traumatised.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was things like people were like pinching their dogs, like multiple people were talking about pinching their dogs or beating them or doing this alpha roll thing and I was kind of like WTF, <laughs> like what is going on here? Yeah. Like pinching? Yeah.
0: Like who does that? <laughs> yeah. And we had at that time in Sweden, we had a lot of dog shows from abroad that were, were on the telly. Mm-hmm. Uh, showing very harsh methods so I think that that really does uh, doesn't help (laughs) Uh, yeah and um, I think it's like people with without the knowledge and in, in really you know being really frustrated they just don't know what to do so and it's it's sad but it's quite common that you try to solve aggression with with you know more aggression but of course it's just a really vicious circle and at that point, I don't think they really knew that their dogs were traumatized. They didn't understand, you know. Uh, they just experienced that. Oh my god, my dogs become really vicious around resources or reactive on the leash, and uh, they. I don't think they'd they'd uh, you know placed out the whole puzzle and understand what was going on. Really, that's true. Because as soon as they do, then they often realize that. Oh my god, what have I done? You know. I've tried to to correct this instead of understanding the deep reason.
1: Okay, I guess that is making more sense to me, because I guess if the dogs are becoming fearful, aggressive, then you feel like you need to take control of the situation. Because I'm thinking just of my guy, Nino, who is like so fearful that like, I would never want to do anything harsh, but, you know... I'm not saying that it's OK, but I'm saying, oh, you're reminding me that I guess when there's an aggressive situation,
0: yeah.
1: people would react differently than if it's a fear, like a, a genuine fearful situation.
0: Yeah. In the study, all the people that had tried harsh methods had aggressive dogs that they had an out, active output, a reactivity issue. And they weren't, the, you know, the scared, fearful ones that drew away. So it
1: was, okay. that doesn't excuse it but at least not. it makes a little more sense to me yeah. in my mind of, of trying to understand yeah. you know where where people are coming from yeah and so talk to us about flooding because this is something that i know we have probably been guilty of with our guy accidentally because you know we were trying to like do like the conditioning like for instance nino is very fearful of the car and mm. so you know we would try just like getting him to jump in the car and give him a treat and then jump out you know and like try to like build up into like well let's just ride down the street and then come right back and you know and it's like that was just too much you know just Mm -hmm. even doing these things you know i think was flooding him you know and so then as with my with what i know i'm just like well i don't know what you do then So this is where it's like, oh, he's not responding the way that we thought it was and then we don't know what to do. So basically, our response has just been, well, unless it's a situation where he absolutely has to get in the car, he just doesn't get in the car, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, flooding, it's an overexposure really, which is really easily done with these dogs because when you trigger train or if you live in an environment where the trigger is all over the shot you know other dogs or sounds or people it's so easy to overexpose these dogs because they're hypersensitive to their triggers of course so it's it's an overexposure which means that the emotional system can't handle what they're experiencing so the dog is experiencing a sound or just the, the the sight of another dog and the emotions that arise are too big for the dog to handle. They can't process, they can't, you know, change their minds about their feelings. They can't be counter conditioned. They won't take a treat, you know, um, right. and they're not trainable. Um, and this emotional system is just completely flooded with emotion. And this worsens their situation. It worsens them.
1: Yeah. Like for instance, we drove to the beach this year. So it's, about an hour and a half two hour drive with nino and i mean he just pants the entire time and drools and he's you know he lays down he's up he's up he's down he's, you know down up down, up, and we would try to give him treats like he can't even take the treat like he doesn't even know that there's a treat there you know and and i'm just like i'm sorry dude <laughs> we don't make you get in the car that often but we're just gonna have to suck it off right oh. now <laughs> i'm always like i don't know what else we do. We try not to have to get him in the car, but every once in a while he's gonna have to get in the car, you know. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And I mean when working with with these dogs and setting out their treatment plans, I want to look at it as a triangle. And in the top, we've got that fear. For instance, the car fear, you know, a dog that really freaks out when, when he's in the car. So that's the symptom really. That's what we need to trigger train. But in the middle of this triangle, we have the feelings that the dog feels at this moment, if it's, you know, uh, a fear or a stress or if it's anger or loss of control or whatever it is. And then at the bottom, we have the, the overall well-being of that dog. And here we can adjust things to make the dog more open for an emotional change So we have to balance everything and make sure that the dog has everything he or she needs to be able to go into a behavioral therapy and and trigger train and actually change. And most often I spend a lot of time in this base of the triangle, fixing everything and and mapping out, you know, what are the triggers? What was the incident? If we know, um, what did it involve? And if I have a dog in front of me, that's you know, doesn't sleep well and has gastrointestinal issues and it's kind of low and down and doesn't want to do fun things anymore. You know, that's what I want to start uh, adjusting before we even get to good tra- training. And that can mean changing their diet so they have nutrition uh, in their body that actually helps them recuperate and get better creating a sleep schedule so they actually do sleep and sleep well even in the daytime if the dog is getting a lot of mental stimulation and training and exercise I want to lower those pillars as well so because the emotional pillar of stress is so high so I want to reduce um, those things if it's just over the top for this dog to handle and then I want to add things that really you know tickles the dog's lust and curiosity and playfulness and happy feelings, so we're balancing the emotional system. I also like to work a lot with exercises that helps them you know find their balance a so balance training really because being in their body, feeling their body, getting a little out of balance and then finding their focus point and their deep breathing and their balance. That's really good training for these dogs. Massage is great. And even if there's a lot of locked up traumas and and trigger points, physical trigger points in their body that they're protecting uh, and closing up their body, I want a physiotherapist to work with this dog and help that dog, you know, stretch out and get that sore muscle pain out of their body. But somebody that knows PTSD and knows that this tense that muscle isn't only about a muscle, it's about a, a trauma, it's about memories, it's about, it's about really bad feelings. So I want to do all that and, and foremost before any of this, I want to make sure that this dog is not sick and is not in pain. And quite a lot of these dogs also have pain-related issues and that adds a layer to it. So all this needs to be done and, and the owner also needs to do like things on a daily basis that makes this dog giggle to get them out of that really, you know, depressed state. And we might need to add uh, other, you know, measures to it, like supplements, for instance. And if it's a PTSD complexer case, we might need medication to help this dog feel different because there's a chemical imbalance, you know, that we can't just adjust with training. So... It might be, you know, a month down the line or even two sometimes before we can start the trigger training. And then I also, when when we start, I want a really low exposure. And when it's possible, desensitization. So no treats, no rewards, just listening to those sounds or looking at dogs on telly or, you know, without us having to counter-condition, just slowly habituating and getting used to to these sounds or smells or whatever it could be. And if that's not possible, if we see that, okay, we have a trigger list left with a lot of triggers that the dog can't get used to, that's when we start counter-conditioning. And we don't do that in the form of, say, for instance, the dog is scared of other dogs. I I won't just go out and place my dog somewhere and stand 20 metres away and start treating this dog because that is too hard. So they need to feel that they can predict what's going to happen. They can say, yes, I want to go. I want to start this training. And they can also say, no, I don't want this. I'm not up for it. This is too much. So we start with like the bucket game, really, the yes and no stop signals like, yes, I want to train, or no, I don't want to train. So we start practicing that. And then when the decoy dog comes in, or, or we, we uh, play the sound at a low, 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 low volume, the dog always has asked the question, are you ready? And if I get, you know, a, a look, uh, I'll start a sound that's not the trigger sound, any other sound. Or if the dog is scared of other dogs, I'll, I'll you know, put a giraffe on the telly, whatever, just something. Uh, and then I'll treat and just say this equals a treat. And then slowly we'll... Add the actual trigger, which might be, you know, the firework sound or the dog. And we'll do it at such a low volume or at such a large distance that the dog is not in the red in the stress scale, but down on the yellow and can take a treat. And the treat is always given away. So there's a distance added away from the trigger. Uh, And afterwards, uh, we want a stress release. So the dog isn't just to be walked back into this situation, have to do it again and again. We walk off and we have a stress release and then we walk into the situation if the dog is ready and says, yes, I want to do this. So that's a long leash and it's always voluntary. If the dog says, no, I don't want to do it, he gets to back out. Uh, and this takes time. I mean, nothing is done in the afternoon. So we have to do it slowly bit by bit and always vary what we're training against. So it's not just the trigger getting bigger or, or louder all the time so a huge variation
1: wow i really love hearing your approach to this um it was reminding me there's a book for people that i love recommending called the body keeps the score okay and it talks about you know how trauma can be stored in, in ourselves physically without us you know maybe even realizing it mm. and uh and when you're talking about like doing massage and things like that and you know i was like oh that's that's exactly that book. And I'll put a link in the show notes because I always feel like everybody should read that book. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I love hearing this approach. And, you know, one of the things that you had uh, mentioned really briefly that I wanted to talk about more is like diet. Because mm. if people listen to the podcast, they probably know that I'm really nerdy about my dog's diet. We feed fresh food. I'm I'm recording this with you about, oh, four or five days after we have brought a new dog into our house that we're adopting. And uh, I think for the first time in over 10 years, there's actually a little bit of kibble in my house (laughs) (laughs) because I've been trying to do like a slow transition not to upset her her stomach or anything. But do you want to talk about the role of diet in how it can affect dogs and eating kibble and, and things like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we spoke briefly about the, the stress pillars, the mental activation, the physical, you know, load and the emotional load on a dog. And then there's a chemical load. And that is related to, I mean, medication, if, if the dog is on, on any such thing or, or diet, you know, food. What are they eating? Are they eating something that's actually a, a chemical load? Uh, are there um, things in the diet that, that doesn't play well with this dog? And that's very individual, of course. So there's no right diet for all dogs. You have to find what's right for your dog. But if there's a lot of oats or rice or corn or starches and things like that in a diet, that could actually be a load on a dog. That could be something that, that isn't benefiting that dog. And if it's a lot of, of uh, you know, um, if the kibble is very colorful, there's additives, of course, uh, in that. So and, and dogs with PTSD, they're, they're like humans who burn out, you know, they've, they've consumed so much nutrition just trying to stay afloat. And every time the dog is triggered and has an uh, stress response, they will need all those B vitamins and magnesium and all those minerals and vitamins that help the dog manage stress. So they're normally very low on those vitamins and minerals. So that might need to be added as well as omega three and things like that. So I I do love to to uh, place these dogs on a raw diet because it's very healthy, of course, and it's it's very easy for them to actually. And grab a whole of those nutrients because they're raw, they're fresh. Uh, but since that's not for all people, then sometimes we have to use uh, kibble. And then the high quality food is is of great importance and, and the supplements most often.
1: So you had also briefly mentioned medication. And I feel like there are times when the, I'm going to say like the medical industry, <laughs> the vet industry are maybe too quick to go to medication. Um, I think this with people too. But um, are there times when you have found that medication is appropriate? And in your role, is there something that you look for to determine like, oh, this might be a good option for this dog or maybe not?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, in Sweden, we're not that fast at, at prescribing medication for behavioral issues. It's, it's on the rise, uh, but for a long time, it's been very, you know, rare, uh, really. Uh, and in, in most cases, supplements and other stress, you know, release strategies will help the dog to to become more balanced and become more trainable. Um, just like with PTSD dogs, just having clear routines and predictability is really important for them. Um, but for those dogs who won't get better, they're still in that acute phase. And they're if they live in an environment where they're triggered constantly and daily, it's It's quite impossible, especially with PTSD complexa, to get anywhere if the dog doesn't get uh, medical help if needed. Uh, And far from all uh, cases need medication. Uh, With my PTSD cases and my my work, about 20, 30% will need medication. And they're the real severe cases. And often they always live in in, uh, environments where they're triggered, where the dog parent can't reduce the trigger picture. Uh, And then medication can be, you know, uh, a great help. But I always say that we we phase it in very slowly. And the aim is to have the dog on this medication for maybe three, four, six months and then phase it out once the training has had effect, once we've altered the dog's feelings around the triggers. Uh, And that's, you know, the big, big test, really, when you start reducing the medication to see uh, are the results still there and for quite a lot of dogs uh, they are so we can face out that medication and for some really severe cases they'll have to be on the medication for, for life just like with some humans uh, and I'm not really pro medications for all dogs and all problem behaviors not at all but in the case where it's really really needed uh, it's just as bad to have a dog in, in severe pain and not give them pain relief. I mean, it's 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 all about ethics at the end of the day.
1: So if there's somebody listening right now who's going, oh, I think my dog might have PTSD, how should they handle that? What what should they do in, in their approach with their dog? Mm,
0: I think the first thing, and this goes also for dog parents with a dog, uh, that experience something and you know right after if they're uh, wondering you know could my dog develop ptsd after this then i think the first thing is to get help really quickly and fast and not wait and see and uh, and reach out to a dog behaviorist uh, and an ethologist who have knowledge within ptsd of course because it's not it's not your average uh, fear or aggression it's something else so get professional help because this is nothing that, you know, you can just solve on your own. You need somebody to to do the mapping out of course and effect and, and the trigger list and set out a plan that's individualized and, and adapted to that dog and, and that coaching and support during this month of training because it's really hard to do on your own. You need the knowledge. You need somebody with the knowledge.
1: <laughs> you know, like I said, I was so surprised at how how many dogs in the study – the pet parents knew that it was a situation with a dog trainer, with a veterinarian, with a groomer, you know, somebody who's a pet professional who caused this trauma situation, you know, with their dog. What steps can pet parents take to try to protect their dogs from being put in these situations?
0: Mm, Very important question. I think, you know, I, I want to say trust no one, <laughs> but that, <laughs> that, that's not a good advice at all. But
1: My husband would wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with that
0: advice. <laughs> no, but I think be aware, you know, that our titles, at least in Sweden, you know, being a dog groomer or a, or a dog psychologist, they're not, you know, protected titles like, like a vet and even a vet that, that does have that protected title It doesn't mean they have the knowledge uh, of dogs' behavior and how to, you know, help a dog that's fearful or angry. Uh, And uh, make sure, I mean, before you go to the vets or the groomers, you know, make sure that you ask, you know, what, what are your strategies if my dog gets angry or scared? And tell them that, you know, if this is a situation with my dog that you can't handle, I will handle it. Uh, and if you get a gut feeling of something, this is not correct, this is not right, they're not handling my dog in a positive way, then interfere and stop it. I mean, you're the paid customer. Don't stand next to this and, and just watch it. Stop it straight, straight away. And um, here we have in Sweden, we have an organization that kind of like quality controls dog trainers and dog psychologists. So here I can always say always go go to one of those trainers or, or dog psychologists. Uh, and what that organization does is checks out, you know, their education and, and their ethical values. Uh, and I think that's super important. So anybody that says, oh, I'll fix that reactivity problem in a GIF, you know, I've got methods, I'll solve it for you. That's probably harsh methods and you want to stay clear of that.
1: Yeah, I think it's really advocating, you know, we've had to get really comfortable with advocating on Nino's behalf, Mm. and not putting him, you know, in situations that aren't going to set him up for success. I know we have uh, something here, I'll put a link in the show notes, like the fear free professionals, Mm. where there's like special training that either vets or like vet tech staff, and I think even other professionals too like trainers and groomers can get fear free certified that they can use methods that aren't going to you know hopefully cause these kinds of, of traumas
0: yeah and i mean if you reach out to your local you know vet clinic and they haven't got one that's fear free then ask for it i mean if the demand is out there they'll have to start thinking about it uh super important yeah and it also goes i mean now we're talking about dog professionals but it also goes to you know your neighbor telling you, I'll help you out with your dog. I'll solve that behavior issue or, or, you know, your best friend who's really good with dogs, but it doesn't really suit your dog, that kind of training, you know, stand your ground and say, stop, no, don't do that to my dog. And be be proactive. I mean, this, if it's happened, it's already happened. It's too late. So you want to, you know, really be the advocate for your dog and, and not put your dog in a situation that could scar the dog for life. So
1: I'm imagining that there are probably a lot of people listening who are going, oh, my gosh, Caroline's great. I wish she could train my dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was really excited to find out that you are part of an app, a dog training app called Petly.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, if there's severe PTSD cases, you can always reach out to me and, and I'll help you along. And, you know, if you've got a dog, a puppy or an adolescent dog or an old dog, a senior dog, whatever, uh, the Petly app's there to help. So the Petly app is full of courses, training and articles, and it's all, you know, scientifically backed and, and ethical. And a lot of it is being proactive and, and uh, making sure that your dog gets the right training, the positive, you know, kind of training and build that confidence. And it also gives you as a dog owner a lot of knowledge you know, and how to handle your dog and how to, if it's uh, grooming or if it's just walking on the leash or it could be recall, but it could also be things like diet and pain assessment. So we kind of have a holistic approach on dog and a lifelong journey kind of uh, set up in the app. So you can start with a puppy and move on to the adolescent course and the adult course and then the uh, senior course. Uh, And there's also a really nice and welcoming community. So we have like a social media community in the app. So apart from the training and the courses, there's also this, you know, warm community where our dog experts are very active. They answer all the questions and they're there to help. And if you get stuck, you know, along the way when you're training your dog, you can always send in videos of your training to our dog expert that will have a look and write you back and feedback your training and and tell you what you can adjust and what you're doing great.
1: How did you get involved with this app?
0: And um, my co-founder reached out to me about two years ago and he was like, oh, my, <laughs> it's quite a funny story because his parents just got a dog and they were Googling everywhere to try to find this knowledge, you know, on how to get it right. Um, and he, he wanted to help them and he realized that, God, it's a mess out there. There's so many, you know, sources and who knows who to trust and some advice really bad and some seems good. And, you know, so he reached out to me and just said you know you're traveling all over scandinavia trying to educate dog owners how about putting it all in an app do you want to help me out so we kind of joined forces and and fused tech and dog science into this product
1: yeah i think it's a brilliant idea and Considering I now have a dog I really need to work with not pulling the leash.
0: <laughs> cool. Because <Get laughs> I just
1: about had my arm pulled off my body this weekend. Uh, it's definitely something I'm going to be looking at.
0: <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah. Get Petly and check it out. And and I mean, all the answers you get in the app and all the content is, like I said, backed by science and ethical. There's no harsh methods. And we really, I mean, we love dogs and it's all for dogs and dog owners. So whatever methods you find there will boost your dog's self-confidence and will boost your teamwork and and solve your dilemmas if you have any
1: oh my gosh caroline you are just awesome (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) thank you so much for everything you shared with us today
0: thank you for having me
1: and uh, i'll make sure i have links in the show notes so that everybody can find you and also the petly app
0: yeah super cool
1: Oh my goodness. I so loved that conversation with Caroline. It really helped us put a lot of Nino's behaviors and our experiences with him into perspective. And, you know, I think we did a really good job of creating a healing environment for him and creating a predictable routine schedule and having the right, you know, health decisions and diet and taking him to the chiropractor and I feel like at least 98% of his life is really good and he's not living in any kind of trauma trigger. But there are these times when he'll have to get in the car or have to be handled by the veterinarian or things like this, where, you know, it might just have to suck for a few minutes, but that it always ends and he always goes back to his safe place and his safe routine. And I think that's really the best that we can do for him. When I was talking to Caroline, some off mic, she was describing how some dogs need like a physical activity to reset themselves after being triggered. And I was thinking about how when we trim Nino's nails, we can usually only do like maybe like the front at one time and then the back and he'll need like a break in between. And one of the things that he has to do is he has a ball and his ball is almost like his pacifier and he'll have to chew on his ball and run around the yard. And then he can come in and like do the rest of it. And she was saying that he's like naturally learned how to, you know, reset his nervous system. And I'm just so proud of him. (laughs) I really am. Even though, Things aren't always going to be perfect for him. I'm just so proud of him and how far he's come and how far we've come and how much all of us have learned over these past eight years together. And I don't think we could have asked anything more from him than he's given And I'm curious how many of you have ever wondered if your dog could have PTSD. If this episode really spoke to you because of your own personal experiences, leave me a comment or shoot me a DM and let me know. I'm just really curious how many of you have also experienced this with your dogs. I thought it was a really interesting statistic that she said that about 30% of dogs who go through something that could be potentially traumatic end up with this PTSD type situation. And make sure you check the link in the show notes if you want to check out the Petly app or get in contact with Caroline. She's really doing amazing work, and I can't wait to learn more from her. And that'll do it. This is our last episode of 2023. I wish you and your family the merriest of holiday seasons and send you all the best wishes for an amazingly happy 2024. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. believe in dog podcast is a production of hugs and belly rubs llc